my alcohol use was going up. I was drinking more and I was drinking hard liquor. And my depression was, it was just, it had started to take over my life. I was handcuffed to a bench in the police station for four hours. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, the host, and tonight I'm excited we have with us Corey Strothman. Corey is a former principal and a mental health advocate. Corey, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm not sure if you even know this about me, but I'm especially excited about having you on because I am an educator as well. I am a former principal as well, and uh, partly due to mental health but uh, and other reasons, I had asked eventually for uh, a voluntary demotion. And so for the past seven years, after two years as a principal, I've been working again as an assistant principal. So I know uh, some of what you, you've walked through as a principal and have a lot of uh, admiration for you and really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your story. Yeah, I'm excited to be here with you. And uh, that's awesome that you are in education. That's a great profession and you can change a lot of lives in there. Yeah, absolutely. So you became a principal at quite a young age, right? Were you 28? Eight was it? Yeah, it was twenty-eight when the opportunity presented itself. Uh huh. Quite young. What was your history in education prior to being a principal? Uh, I graduated from Kansas State University in two thousand seven, um, mid-year, and I went to Kansas City and I subbed all over the place. I actually, had a long-term sub and a special ed role, um, and then I taught fourth and second grade. And at that point. Um, I decided that it was time to look into making a bigger impact. So I got my master's in school leadership. And again, at 28 years old, they said, hey, we have a spot for you. And I was uh, all ready. That's fantastic. So prior to going into education, any types of issues or concerns with mental health that you were aware of? I wasn't aware of it at that time. I think when you look back with a clear head in mind now, the signs were there. But I didn't know any better, so I just kind of played it off. Yeah, and when you say signs were there, are you talking anxiety or depression or what types of things, looking in hindsight, would you say are apparent to you now? Well, looking back in college, it is like once a semester, I would be sick, and you can't see me, but that was an air quote sick, um, because what I would do is I just didn't feel like being around anyone. I'd shut the door. I'd isolate myself from the world. I didn't see the the point and being there. And that was for 24, 48 hours. And then I just, you know, re-entered the world. But that was like clockwork. At least once a semester, my roommates knew that. But again, I just thought maybe I was sick. I didn't know. Right. And, and it doesn't, I mean, that once a semester probably didn't have any kind of major repercussions to your life or to your schooling at that point either, I'm guessing. Oh, no. Yeah, it was it was fine. I could just jump right back into life and it wasn't that big of a deal at all. Right, right. 
so then you go into education, you teach for a bit, and then uh, what? Was, I know you said you wanted to make a larger impact. Can you say more, a little bit more about what made you decide to go into administration? Yeah, well, it actually started back, so my mom is in education, and she was my fifth grade teacher, which was really cool, so that's how I got into the field of edu- education. But then, you know, I had 24, 25 students and you could just see with a year's worth of time the huge impact that you could have on them and their families. But I was in a building of 550 kids. So I was like, well, I just have a little pocket in the wall of a big school. And then I really valued the principal that I had there. So I started to watch him a little bit more closely and just asking questions and seeing what he could all do. And then it just it just hit me that, you know, that's that's really something that I want to pursue. Uh huh. Cool. And then did he become a mentor at all for you? And did you share your interests with him? Yeah, he he absolutely was a mentor. He's the one that, you know, got me to where I where I ended up. Um, He would give me the opportunity to take on a little bit more. He would um, always explain the reasoning behind decisions that he would make and give me the bigger picture of things, which I wasn't accustomed to just being a classroom teacher. Right. And so then you take the jump, you do some more schooling and all of a sudden you have an offer. And what was that like? I mean, was there an interview process for you? I know all districts and even all superintendents work it kind of differently. Did you have an interview process and were there others uh, vying for the job? Yeah, it's a competitive market to get into administration, as you probably know. Um, Our district had a kind of a self-grooming program. It's a two-year program where they teach the ins and outs of administration. But again, that doesn't guarantee you anything. You go through that program with 15, 20 people. Um, And honestly, at the age I was at, at 28, I didn't even think I'd be considered. So it was a little bit of a shock when I got the opportunity to interview. And it was an even bigger shock when they came knocking on my door and said they'd like to have me fill a position. Yeah, and do you remember the conversation about you receiving a new position as a principal? Yeah, I I had the uh, associate superintendent came in and shut the door. And normally that's, uh, you know, that's an intimidating thing as a a young professional. And and she just kind of sat there and just kind of looked at me. And then all of a sudden she said, well, you know what, we've talked about it. We thought you interviewed really well and we really think you'd be a great fit. And I'll, I'll never forget, you know, the excitement that I had wanting to call my wife right away, the trip home. Of course, you have to drive by the school that you're going to be taking over, right? Because you just kind of want to see the, the palace that you're going to be in. So it was it was a great event. Yeah. And that was just before the prior year had ended. Is that right? It was actually it was actually at the end of the year. Yeah. And we were coming up on summer break. Uh, it was getting pretty close. And they came in because the position opened a little later than most administration uh, positions open. Okay. Okay. And then, and this, I think uh, I had read this was 2014-15 was your first principalship. Is that right? 2014 and 15 was my first uh, principalship. I did serve as an interim principal uh, the year before. And that's where I got some experience. Actually, was they call it a... Um, a TOA, which is just a teacher on assignment, but they're actually working as an as an uh, administrator, just kind of learning the ropes. And a quarter way through the year there, they shipped me off to middle school, which I had absolutely no background in. And I was an administrator there in the similar position. 
Um, so I got some experience and then the principal that I was learning from actually went on maternity leave. So I was an interim principal there. So I did have some experience, which I think helped me out because they got to see me working, uh, which gave them a little bit more confidence and trust in what I could do. Right. Right. And tell us about, uh, your first year. I mean, the first time you walk in that building, are you still just as pumped as you were? Any kind of nerves going on? What was that first moment? Like? I, think, I think every emotion you can probably have is there. There's fear. There's um, joy. There's excitement. There's nervousness. In the unique position that, that I was in is I was taking over a building that was going into construction over the summer. So I could not even get into the building. I was working out of a close middle school. And we cut it extremely close to the opening of the school year. So I got in to the, to the school about three days before the kids were coming for back to school night. And we actually only got cleared for our, our permit to let uh, patrons in like three hours prior to the event. So people are coming in wanting to meet me. We have new families coming in asking for directions around the building. I'm as lost as they were. I don't know. I said, just bear with me. I had a map in my hand, but uh, it was an interesting time. Did, uh, you, did you have an assistant principal with you, or were you the one and only admin? I was one and only. So we had a school of 550 kids there as well. Uh, we were a Title I school. We had a lot of poverty, uh, but great community. Uh, I did eventually, towards the end of my tenure there, have a part-time assistant principal. But my first year, it was just me. Yeah, so, and and coming into that construction, it's interesting. Like we just wrapped up our first year after having massive construction in our building too, and our teachers couldn't even get in at the beginning of this past school year during the opening week when teachers are required to be back. So I can completely <laughs> relate to that. But I would imagine, as the one and only principal, that had to have been just adding to your stress, I would imagine. Yeah, definitely. It definitely did. But the good thing was I was probably too green to know any better. Right. <laughs> you know, you're trying to figure out every, all the tasks and things that you have to do. So looking back, I probably wasn't as stressed as maybe someone else might have been just because of I didn't know what I should know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So tell us uh, how that uh, first year rolled out. I mean, was it a stressful first year or were you just catching your stride right away? What was that first year like? It's a whirlwind for sure. It was a great first year. I mean, I made plenty of mistakes, but when you are honest and genuine with people and you just own those mistakes and you move forward and make the proper corrections, I think that that's great. I walked into a staff that was well-established, which is always nice. Um, and the community was, again, just overwhelming with their love and support that they gave to me. So there's a lot of things. I mean, you're not ready for the amount of questions that people ask in a day. That's for sure. I mean, you're making hundreds of thousands of decisions. And I'll never forget the PTA meeting when we had an event. And uh, they said, well, our book fair is actually the same night as a choir concert. And I just looked at them and said, well, who made that decision? And they looked at me and they said, well, we asked you about it and you made that. I mean, it, I, I don't even remember that because there's so many things that go on. So I had to learn to kind of slow down and be a little bit more methodical with my decisions. But, uh, man, if I could go back and relive that first year, there's some things that I would change, but it was, a, it was a blast. Yeah. Large staff. I had, when you talk about, uh, classified and certified, uh, 75 staff members. Okay. About how many classes at each grade and what grades was the school? 
We were a pre-K through sixth grade, and we had three or four sections of each grade level, and then we had our special classes as well with the art, PE, music, and library. Right. And you said 500 or so students, is that right? 550 kids. Now, we were very transient. We were surrounded by three main apartment complexes where we got the majority of our kids, so people were coming and going at all times. My first year... We went up to 585 at one point, and we were also at 540 at one point in the year. So, I mean, it was just come and go, which is difficult, and it's sad because you get to know a family and a kid, and then they leave, but uh, you just do the best you can when they're with you. Right. So you were getting acclimated. It sounds like it was a fairly smooth first year. No no big hurdles to jump over, no large situations that, uh, that caused you major uh, concerns or anything that first year. No, um, not that I can recall. Uh, I was there for five years and I had many more situations in years after year one that were um, memorable. But year one was just a lot of me asking questions. You know, in an elementary building, when you're the only person, you can't really have a lot of those difficult conversations with other staff members because of confidentiality. So I'm picking up the phone and uh, there's in our school district, we had 34 elementary schools. So I had my list of people that I would just go down and call and ask questions and learn and knowing that I had to grow. And um, it it was really a great first year just because of the people around me. That's what made it so memorable. What about people above you, like associate superintendent? Were they coming into your building, checking on you, giving you support? Yeah, we have a district of 27,000 kids. So you're not seeing the superintendent. You're not seeing the associate superintendents that much. But we did have someone that was in charge of um, elementary principals and they would come in, especially being year one, I was provided with a principal that was my mentor. And then I would have, uh, consistent visits from my boss as well. And they were more than supportive, but as you know, being 28 and wanting to impress everybody, you, you also don't want to show too much weakness. So you're trying to decide when do I go to my boss? Because what if they think I should already know that? And um, it's, it's a balance for sure. So you get through the first year, it sounds like a really decent first year. Um, and then when do you experience any kind of first feelings around depression or something going on with your mental health? Yeah, that was probably, again, if you look back, the symptoms and signs were probably there, but it was about three years ago when I was, uh, I'll never forget, I was at home setting up my Christmas tree, and I got a call from my younger brother, who also lives in Kansas City, and he had said, hey, I just want you to know that I'm in the hospital, I've just been diagnosed with testicular cancer, and right when that, I heard that word cancer, you know, I just, my mind just took over, and I sunk into my couch, and, um, you know, I wasn't right for about four days after that. And as I was kind of moping around the house or just not being myself and just thinking the world was, you know, was not fair, that's when my wife approached me and she had mentioned, you know, I understand the tough time that you're going through with your brother. And I mean, I, I think anybody would be like that, but she said, I also want you to know that I've seen this from you before and not to the level of situations that we're in now. I think there's more going on, and, and she really encouraged me to get to a doctor at that point. 
So give us a sense of the time frame here. You said that was three years ago. Was this about your second year into the principalship then? Yes, uh, about two and a half years in at this point. Uh-huh. And she could see you kind of moping around at the house. Were you feeling like you were different at work as well? I tried to hide it as much as I could. I mean, the energy level wasn't there as much. Uh, my self-confidence had shrunk. Uh, I mean, you would think that your confidence would only grow as you continue into more experience in a position, but it started to regress and uh, more self-doubt. And it just, you could tell something wasn't right because you don't know me that well, but my ego is fairly big. <laughs> it wasn't to the point where, you know, it wasn't my normal self. So yeah, it, changes were about and there was more of me not wanting to be around people and that's just not who I am when I'm feeling well. So how did that show up at work? Were you isolating yourself in the office more? I tried not to. Um, people could sometimes tell. My, I had the open door policy where I didn't care. You know, I got to work because I had to drop my kids off in the morning at points. So I got to work about 7.15, 7.30. And as soon as I got in, people could come into my office, and they did. And I left work about 5.30. And I, after school was over, I never shut my door. Um, but I think the conversations were probably shorter. I might not have dug into find out as much about a situation um, as I would typically do if those symptoms were present. Right. And you mentioned four days or so, and your your wife had that conversation with you about, hey, maybe something more is going on. Did you immediately take some type of action at that point? Yeah, so we looked at it, and we decided that the first uh, step of action for me would be to go to my physician and just talk about the symptoms that I've been having. And um, as I did that, I was diagnosed with a major depressive disorder at that point. What were some of the other symptoms you had? Um, so mainly it was just I had a lot of highs and lows. And in my lows, I was fatigued. I'd isolate. Um, Self-confidence and purpose in life just didn't seem to be there. Uh, so it would be that I would, in that moment, I would think, well, I don't deserve to be around anybody. Who would want to be around me? Um, I'm not benefiting anyone. I'm not productive in society. And it, I just couldn't, I couldn't get those cobwebs out of my head, no matter what was going on. I mean, it could be, we could be having a great event at school. And I would think in my head, I'd be thinking, well, this has no part of me. I don't know why I need to be a part of it. You know, it's just that self-doubt is just always running through my head. Well, especially with the depression, right? I mean, I had that absolutely exactly the same thing where somebody could complain to me about anything in the building or school and I would instantly attribute it to me and believe that they were complaining about me, even though that really wasn't the case. Yeah. I mean, it could be that lunch was 10 minutes behind schedule and it had nothing to do that a class came in from recess late. I mean, you had nothing to do about that, but you're just thinking, man, I'm a failure. Right. Like, I didn't get him through the lunch line in time. Yeah. Oh, I can completely relate to that. So you go into the, the general family doctor, correct? Mm -hmm. You yep. have this conversation. He diagnoses you right then and there with major depression. Mm -hmm. What happens from there? Did you leave with some a prescription for meds or what was the plan walking out the door? Yeah. So there was multiple things that we discussed. Number one was um, health. Am I getting enough exercise? What's my nutritional meals look like? And then we did discuss medication too, and we chose to go that route. So uh, started me on a low dose medication 
And uh, then I would check back in in four weeks and see how things were going. So I left encouraged, but I also had doubt in the back of my mind, like, am I truly depressed? Like, is this, is this real? And I wasn't told that it was. Right, right. So you start the meds, you go back to work, and what's that like? I mean, are you having doubts and wonderings about the medications, and did you experience any side effects? For the first medication I took, I really didn't have any side effects. And honestly, it, there wasn't a ton of doubt. It was more of a, I don't know if it was placebo effect or what, but I was like, okay, well, if this truly is depression, well, I have an answer. So maybe the end is in sight. Um, so I, I went in with a good, a, a good mindset at first, but, uh, that didn't last too long. What do you mean by that? Tell us more. Well, I would say that I, I did feel good for six to eight weeks and the mindset, the ego got in that, Hey, I, you know what? I'm an administrator. I've been showing people my whole life that I can handle life by myself. There's no way I have depression. I don't need this medication. And when that gets in your head, I start taking my medication inconsistently, uh, which was an awful thing to do because sure enough, another low came. And when you fall into that low of being in that depressed mode, just going and taking one pill when you haven't been taking it you know, consistently or at all, <laughs> that's not going to help anything. Right. So how inconsistent were you? I mean, would you like pop a pill one morning and then wait three days or something? And you, was it a pill that you should have been taking once regularly per day? Yeah, it's a, it's a morning pill that I should have been taking daily in it. You know, at first it would have been, if I, if I didn't remember then, oh, well, I didn't take it. And then it occasionally, or it eventually got to the point where, you know, I just wouldn't take it and I'd only take it if I saw it in front of me. And then, you know, the month prescription is up you're like, Oh my gosh, I still have 10 pills in here. I mean, and then I'm like, well, I don't want anyone to know that I'm not taking it. So I'd either flush the pills or get rid of them and then go get my next prescription. Eventually it ran off to where I just didn't even refill my prescription and I didn't care if anyone knew, no one did know, but uh, I was like, well, I, I don't want to, I don't want to pay any money if I'm not actually going to take it. Were you in communication with your doctor at all about it? No. So you had completely gotten off your meds and the doctor didn't know anything about that. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't advise that to anyone listening. I mean, that's a terrible thing to do. It's not healthy. It's not safe. Right. But that's the that's the state of mind I was in. Yeah. So you quit taking your meds and you hit another low. What was that like? Uh, it was frustrating uh, because, you know, I thought that, well, I thought I... I I thought I got a plan in place and I was okay, but then I was, you know, I got rid of the medication and I continued to think to myself, I am a tough man. You know, I, I've got the, I've got two kids at home that I want to be a role model for. How can I be struggling with something? How can I not defeat something on my own? Because throughout my entire life, I've been an independent, successful person that really didn't need a whole lot of support. Um, so I just, you know, it's like, well, what is going on? This and I still was in denial that it was depression. It's like, I, I have to get through this myself. Uh, and, and, you know, it's tough. I couldn't do it. What do you mean you couldn't do it? Were you flailing at work? Or what, what kind of new symptoms were you experiencing? Well, so my attendance at work started to become uh, worse. I would take sick days and, you know, 
I wouldn't really give any details of why I was sick, but what I was doing as I was laying at home in bed, um, similar to what I explained in college, but it made it even worse because in college, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of responsibility. It was just class that I was missing, but now I know I'm a leader of a building. I have so much self-doubt and I'm laying in bed because I can't get up out of bed. I can't see the, the value of my life. But then I'm thinking the whole time too, well, I'm letting everyone down every second that I lay here. And it's trying to, like, am I going to be more productive if I go to work in this state? Or am I better just to escape and hide from the world in my bedroom? Oh, it's a vicious, vicious circle, isn't it? Because it's, then I can only imagine you, you decide to stay in bed and then you beat the crap out of yourself saying, now I'm being this lazy bum and not even doing my job. And it just can take you down the spiral of that dark hole. Yeah, you can't really jump out of it. Um, and then... You know, when you do return from work and everyone's asked, everyone cares about you and uh, they're asking more and more questions, how are you doing? And you don't know exactly what to tell them. And it's just, it's so tough to get out of. It got to the point where I eventually did explain to my staff that I was battling with depression. Uh, they were very supportive of that. And that, that was a hard jump for me to take. Did you uh, share that like at a staff meeting with your entire staff? No, I was... I was too afraid to look people in the eye and tell them that I had a major flaw in my eyes at that time. So it was it was one of the days that I was at home and depressed and fighting the I need to be at work. So I I typed up an email and I sent it out to my staff via email um, because that way I didn't have to look at the reaction in their faces telling them directly. And what was it like going to work after you had sent that email? Were you concerned worried I mean at this point in life I was concerned and worried about everything but they made it they made the transition back extremely easy like I said before this staff is a veteran staff they're uh, they're just good at what they do and what they do as an educator is they help people and I'm no different so they were there to love and support me which made it easier and honestly it probably allowed me to um, last a little bit longer than I did the last couple of years. Right. So you shared with staff, you kept going back to work, you were off the meds. Mm -hmm. What yep. happens next? So uh, my wife and I talk, and at this point my wife doesn't know that I'm not consistently on medication. Um, but you and she knew said, where you were staying at home at times? Some days. Okay. Uh, some days she knew, some days... She didn't know. She got out of the house before me, and I was I was depressed. I would just stay at home. Right. And so we had talked, and we thought, well, the next thing is you need to see a therapist. And medication I was okay about going to do. Therapy I was scared to death to do. It's just not something I felt comfortable with. Again, I think it comes down to the manly persona that, hey, I you know I don't sit on a couch and share my feelings with people. I'm someone that can handle it. Um, so we did finally agree on seeing an online therapist where I could be in the comfort of my own home. Um, and then when it was over, I could shut my computer as fast as possible because one thing that I was completely terrified with was if I went somewhere in Kansas city, is someone recognizing me walking into a building? I just thought that would be the end of the world and the rumors would fly and the judgment would be there. So yeah, it's interesting. So like, I, that's really interesting to me. Like I felt the exact same way and I ended up 
going to a behavioral health clinic. Mm. And so for me, it was like, holy crap. When I see people I know in here, they're going to know why I'm here. I can't even say I'm here for my, you know, yearly physical or something, Mm -hmm. getting my eyes checked. I was at a behavioral health clinic and I was so nervous about bumping into somebody. I thought about changing doctors just because of that. So I can completely relate to that. But I'm really curious because you had already shared with your staff And I don't know about you, but it seems to me when you work in an elementary school, and I have for many, many years, things spread quickly. And if Mm -hmm. you had sent an email to your staff, I mean, families and parents, probably a lot of people already knew anyhow. So seeing you at a clinic wouldn't have been too shocking for many people. Yeah. So when I sent that email to my staff, I asked them to keep this in full confidence. And that's the kind of trust that I had in them. I don't think I would have put a written document out there that I was struggling with depression if I didn't trust that they would do that. Right. And my, so honestly, my community never really knew um, until my downfall. Okay. But so I, that's who I was still scared of seeing. And even my close principal friends, they didn't know. So I tried to act like this happy-go-lucky person that I am when I'm feeling well all the time. But as a principal, you know, it seems like you bump into someone you know all the time. It doesn't oh, yeah. matter where you're at. Um, you're going to hear, hey, Mr. Strothman, Mr. Strothman. And it's like, how in the world did you know I was here? You know, it just feels like that. you almost feel like uh, when you're when you're a celebrity and people are going around, which I know that that's not the case, but – that's how I felt too when I was going to go to a therapist's office is, man, I need to get my hat on, my sunglasses, put a big old jacket on because I don't want anyone to see me. Right. It's amazing. I mean, I, I was the same way and it took me a long time to even realize and acknowledge that that was shame, right? I was, I had a lot of shame around it. I would get a prescription medication and I would come home and I would like shred and tear up any of the paperwork affiliated with it because I didn't want somebody digging through my trash to see that I was on an antidepressant. Exactly. <laughs> it is, shame, shame is there and it, it is in full force. There's no doubt about that. Did any of your superiors know, your boss or associate soups know about your depression? So I told my boss uh, about the same time that I told my staff and they were supportive. They wanted to know what they could do. And I left it up to them. I said, if you'd like to share this with the people above you, I'm fine with that. Um, But I'm not going to share that with them at this time. And honestly, it's because I was was fearful for my job. I thought, well, if they know that I have a mental illness, how in the world are they going to trust me with the community and all these young kids? How is he going to be able to give advice and continue on when he's trying to handle himself? So I, I just thought, man, I don't know if I'm, you know, putting my career in jeopardy by doing that or not. But um, when it got to the point where I was missing about 10 days a year as a leader of a building, I knew that I needed to tell my boss because, you know, they have to wonder what's going on. Right, right. Tell us more about your video therapy. What was your first session <laughs> like? Because I know you were resistant, it seemed like, uh-huh. a little bit. Uh, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, quite honestly. It's just a, a FaceTime conversation, essentially, and just the person asking a lot of questions. And it the biggest challenge was being able to be vulnerable and open up. But that was easier for me because this person wasn't even in my state. So I could just kind of tell them, here's what's going on. I didn't have to worry about anything of the outside. And 
Um, when it was over, I was like, uh, you know, I could take that or leave that. Um, but I, I did have a few more sessions with them, but overall for the, the online therapist, I think four was probably the max that I did. Okay. And did you start back on meds at all? Um, I switched medication around this time and I did experience heavy side effects with my second medication that, um, made it very difficult. So now I'm on medication number two, I'm starting to feel side effects and I'm starting again to think this medication stuff is, is not for me. Um, what kind of, uh, side effects did you have the first time? Uh, side effects of, I had trouble sleeping, uh, which was weird. And I became very, um, very short with people, which my patience was gone, which just things that weren't me that were very hard because I could feel myself doing these things, but it's not someone that I am. So it's just like, you know what your values are, but what's coming out of your mouth doesn't align all the time. And it's very frustrating. So, uh, I got, I got back to the doctor and and got off of those, um, as soon as I could. And they just decided, uh, to change you up. Yeah, I mean, when I say as soon as I could, I, I gave because they always want you to do the, you know, about six weeks to get the full dosage in. Um, and it was probably two or three months into that medication. And we switched it up. And at that point, we went to a different medication, uh, Trentilix, which I became extremely nauseous when I took Trentilix. Um, and that's one of the side effects that it lists. And yeah, I, it, it was not good for me. Wow. So how quickly did you have to get off of that med? I decided myself just to get off that med. I didn't talk to anyone this time. I was through with it. I just stopped taking it. And you said now you're on another one. Yeah. So now I've, when I went to rehab, I, for depression and alcohol abuse, I had, I was there for 18 days and I had a psychiatrist checking in on me every day and we just completely revamped all my medication. We just started, started clean. And it's the first time that I started to take medicine for anxiety too, okay. which has been very beneficial for me. And I'm on a new medication that I've been on now for almost six months, uh, taking it consistently every day. Uh, and I don't know, it's, it's the best experience I've had with medication in my life. Oh, that's great to hear. Mm-hmm. So bring us to the point that brought you to inpatient? Yeah, it was. So one thing that we haven't talked about um, is alcohol started to show its ugly head in my story. Okay. And that's, so when therapy's not working for you, you're not taking medication, you're looking for some sort of relief. And for me, alcohol gave me that two hours of normalcy at night when my kids and my wife went to bed. Um, And this isn't, all the time, but it's when I'm starting to feel bad. Um, you know, that's the way that I would quote unquote feel normal for a little bit, which is really pretty, a pretty common way. Unfortunately, that people self-medicate going Mm -hmm. to the alcohol or drugs. Yeah, absolutely. And then we talked about the cycle before. Well, the same cycle happens with alcohol because you're mixing a depressant with being depressed. And when you wake up the next day, you're like, man, why did I drink alcohol? 
and you just feel even worse about yourself. And then later on that week, you're still feeling bad about yourself. So you want to feel normal for a while. Well, back to the alcohol you go and it's just a cycle that keeps going. How much were you drinking and was it only in the evenings? Yeah, it was in the evenings. Um, in at this point, um, I would say I was probably drinking three times a week, uh, majority during the weekend, probably one day during the week. Uh, it, it really didn't have too big of impact. It wasn't the main problem, I should say. I was still just trying to handle my depression. But how much two- how much were you drinking though? Was it like three cans of beer a night, or were you really really pounding down some stuff those few nights that you drank throughout the week? Yeah, that's a great question. So. I would drink, um, it would, it would usually be, I'd have one or two mixed drinks, uh, to start off with. When I say to start off with, that means early on in, in using alcohol. But then as we go through my story, that escalates quite a bit, um, because it's a little bit harder to get to the high that I wanted to be to the relief that I needed. So the amount would go up. Um, and that's what led me to to my inpatient in November of 2018. It was a mixture of uh, my alcohol use was going up. I was drinking more and I was drinking hard liquor. And my depression was, it it was just, it had started to take over my life. Um, So my wife came home and she had talked to me. My brother came over. I had been drinking and they said, you need help. And, um, I called my parents and talked to them. So I agreed, let's go to the nearest hospital. And I went to inpatient there for three days, really focusing on depression. Um, not really talking much about alcohol. And after those three days off, I just told, I didn't tell my staff at this point where I was at. I just told, I had my wife call into school and say, Hey, he's going to be gone for three days. Um, that backed up to a weekend and I went right back to work after those three days, but then I went to an outpatient, um, for nine hours a week after work that focused on depression. And that's what I was like, this is depression. Alcohol is not a problem. Still in denial about the alcohol. Um, and still drinking. And I took a month off. So the month of December, I did not drink at all because I knew that alcohol, I mean, in the back of my mind. I knew that alcohol had become a problem. Right. Didn't didn't want to admit that, but I was like, a lot of my a lot of my symptoms are even worse because of the alcohol. So I just told my family. I said, "Listen, I'll prove to you that I don't need alcohol, and I didn't drink any in the month of December, and things were things were good." Um, but then, and I, and I still to this day don't know. But in January, it fell apart, and I started to consume alcohol a lot. And what do you mean when you say a lot? I was consuming alcohol probably four to five days a week, um, three days during the work during the work week at night, um, which I tried to avoid because you know you, you bright and early at school and um, you got people walking through the door. You want to be at your best, um, but at this point it wasn't two mixed drinks. It was you know four or five mixed drinks or or six depending on the night, um, which is just unfathomable at this point in my life thinking, what was I doing? Um, and it got to the point where that's the only way I knew how to, I mean, it was a cycle at this point. It was 
depressed during the day, couldn't wait to get to drink alcohol to get away from everything. Wake up the next day, depressed, can't wait until that time comes at night where I can get to the alcohol. Um, and that led to my DUI in January. Tell us about that night. Yeah, that, so I, just to backtrack a little bit, I told my family that in November, that was my rock bottom. Um, and I, I truly thought it was, but I was soon to find out that you don't hit the rock bottom until you put the shovel away and and stop digging. And I was still digging on January. So I was in a conference, um, about an hour away from Kansas city. And that conference wrapped up Friday, January 25th at noon. I had been having issues with my parents, my family. I was really angry with them. Um, and that's not typical. I have a great loving relationship with all of my family, but I was very short. I just felt like they don't understand what I'm going through. They, they just, they're trying to fix me and why don't they just listen? Why don't they just care? So I got into an argument with, with my mom and I knew that they were actually coming into town into Kansas city that weekend. So I had taken the afternoon off. I went to a therapy appointment in Kansas City at 2.30. And right when I got done with the appointment, I looked at my watch and I said, oh my goodness, my parents are going to be in town about two hours. And at that point, I got on my phone and I Googled the, the nearest liquor store I could. Uh, the next thing you know, I'm at a stoplight and someone is out of their car and they're snapping pictures of my driver's plate. And I was thinking, what in the world? And I knew that I had uh, alcohol in my car. Um, I had been drinking. And I just thought, everything before my eyes is flashing. I'm going to lose my job, my family. Anything that I valued was going to be out the door. So you Uh, went to a liquor store and grabbed some booze and started drinking in your car while you were driving it? uh, I mean, I drank it in the parking lot. Okay. So it was gone and empty. Um, that doesn't make you any better. I mean, I, I slammed it and it was, a, it was a t- if I could go back and change something in life, it's that day right there, January 25th. And there's no, no second thought to that. Putting myself behind a wheel after I've been drinking, endangering other people's lives. Uh, I, to this point, it's like, man, that is not who I ever wanted to be. And I tell people that's not me, but in reality, it, that's exactly who I was. That's what I was doing. So how can I say that that wasn't me at that point in time in life? That's what I became. I think that was you. And I think you had an illness. I think you had a mental illness and I think you were self-medicating with booze, which also is an illness too, right? Substance abuse. So I'm sure it was you. I think you were sick. Oh yeah. At this point in time, I was very sick, uh, very sick. So uh, the person had mentioned for me to pull over and I had the, um, fight or flight moment. And I had that voice inside my head said, don't pull over. So I decided to continue to drive home. And you didn't uh, even know why they were snapping shots. Nope. No idea. Um, did you and, figure you had done something wrong with your driving or? Yeah. I mean, I, you knew something was up. Yeah, I mean, you don't. People don't just get out of their car and start snapping pictures and tell you to pull over, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that would be a first for me, anyway. <laughs> um, so, I pull into my neighborhood, and the 
the person had called me in and the cops were waiting for me. And at that point I was handcuffed, uh, cited with a DUI and leaving the scene of an accident and taken to the police station. So my parents were coming into town to, to meet me to go out to dinner and it ended up they had to come in to town and pick me up from the police station. Wow. So a DUI, essentially a hit and run type of deal. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you go to jail and your folks come in and bail you out? Yeah, I was handcuffed to a bench in the police station for four hours. Wow. Uh, yeah. And that, so in the moment, that was the worst thing in my life. And hear me out on this. I say the worst thing in my life at that time because I thought all life was over. In reality, with a clear mind, um, and six months out from the situation, that's the best thing that ever happened to me. I think that that might have saved my life. Um, I was heading down a path so fast that I don't know what was next. If I'm going to do that, then what else could I perform or what else could I try to do? And it gave me the why in the road. It gave me the choice of, all right, you can either admit to things, get out of denial, admit you need help, do some deep soul searching, or you can lose your family, you can lose your two boys, you're probably going to lose your, your job anyway, but that could be something as well um, in my fam- you know, in my extended family. And I and I would, your life in my life. Yeah. You're right. In my life. So that was something that um, from there I went to detox uh, in Johnson County for three days. I was not speaking with my wife, um, deservedly so. And I'll never forget the phone call. I, I called my parents and I just was crying and saying, I can't handle life on my own. I, I don't know what to do. Um, I don't know how I can make things different. And I said, I, I need you guys to find me somewhere to go. I need the help to to get my life back on track where it needs to be. And they did some researching um, to find a place. It's it's very difficult that I found to find a place that focus on, focuses on mental health and addiction. Um, a lot of them are just strictly addiction or more of the mental health side. So they found me a great dual diagnosis place about two and a half hours from Kansas City. And I went straight there for 18 days. 18 days, so inpatient, you stayed there. I stayed there, yeah. And when you go into a place like that, um, you know, essentially what happens is my dad brought me there uh, and the, he just drops you off. They don't let him go in past a certain door. Your cell phone and everything is removed. You don't have access to the outside world. You get each week, you get uh, two 10 minute phone calls a week. And that's it. And uh, what's your living situation like? Are you in a dorm type of situation? Kind of. It's nicer than a dorm. It, it's like uh, uh, a two-person room. I did have a roommate there, and it fluctuates how many people are there, who's coming and going. Uh, there's a main area, too. Um, the staff there was incredibly nice and made you feel as comfortable as possible uh, because it, you know, you're going into a to a place where I actually found comfort. And the reason I found comfort is because I was with people that I knew had the same issues that I did. And I, I actually could look at these people and say, they get it. They understand. 
because for me, I found it very difficult to listen to people that didn't truly understand what was going on. Right. That's one of the reasons I believe so strongly in support groups too. Mm -hmm. People who have been through the same thing. It's kind of an instant trust as well. Yeah. I mean, it's when you haven't lived it or you you can't truly put yourself in someone else's shoes, you know, then it's harder to take their word with the value that they're, they're intending to. It's not that they're trying to, um, have any less value or they, you know, they're trying to support you, but you're like, well, you know, throw them to the side. They have no idea. Right. Uh, So what, uh, take us through a day at, uh, the inpatient. Yeah. So you got up and you had breakfast as a group at seven fifteen AM. How big of a group are you talking? Uh, at max, it was 12 people at, at the highest point when I was there. But again, people are coming and going. So, right we were as low as I think eight at one point when I was there and high as is 12. Um, then we would come back and you have this, this packet, this information packet and kind of tasks and activities that you had to complete. So there was time when you came back from breakfast to go through some of that information. And a lot of what you're filling out is putting down plans, putting down things that have got you to where you're at. Um, so just them trying to pull information and to get the, the truth and transparency out of you. So you had time to work on that. And then you'd have morning sessions uh, with a counselor for the rest of the morning up until lunch. Um, with the big group? With the big group, yeah. yeah. Everything was done with the group. There was right. not not a whole lot of individual time. That was more at night. And then the afternoon, the afternoon, the morning was more on education and awareness type things. The afternoon was more on coping mechanisms and plans to help yourself. And then the nurses came in and did a little bit more on the, the educational side as well. And did they start you on any kind of medication while you were there? Mm-hmm. That's where I started my uh, depression, my new de- uh, depression medication. That's where I experienced anxiety medication for the first time. I also started on a sleeping agent called Trazodone, which I'm actually still on today. Um, that's a non-addictive. So I mean, people that worry about the sleeping stuff, it's, um, uh, not addictive. And I just had a lot of trouble sleeping and I actually still have nights. I actually, I I wrote about this on my website yesterday. I still have nights where I have an extremely difficult time sleeping. Mm -hmm. Um, so they got all that. And I've, again, I worked through that for 18 days. My family came to, uh, one, counseling session, one group therapy session, the, the last day before I was discharged, I did one session with the counselor and my wife over the phone, which was, I mean, right now we're talking about trying to, to build a bridge that I burnt down to the ground with trust with her. So I'm doing everything I can. And so I got her to, to do a, a counseling session with me there. And then the last couple of days before I was discharged, I had to make sure that I could transfer everything back into the real world and where I could pick up where I left off of having an assigned therapist, having a psychiatrist, having plenty of support groups to go to. And I just knew that the work was the work was not at therapy as much as it was when I got back to Kansas City and tried to reestablish my life there. Right. Exactly. 
One thing I've heard, and I'm wondering if this was your experience, when you go into a, a place for a dual diagnosis, that the first thing they want to do really is, like you mentioned, you went through detox, but they want to make sure the alcohol or the drugs and whatnot are out of your system and address that first before they dig into the mental health piece because it just uh, dilutes everything so much. You don't know what's the mental health piece, what's the alcohol or drug piece until that's out of your system. Was that your experience as well? Yeah, that's what they do. Um, since I went to Johnson County Detox in Kansas City for three days first, I was accelerated through that in the rehab process. But I did notice that people that were admitted, you know, they take vitals on you uh, much more frequently the first three to five days. And they want to make sure that uh, you know, all those symptoms are out of your system as well. But because I was in Kansas City and, and had already done that step, I got to jump into joining the group a little bit faster than most. Right. That was 18 days. And just to get a sense of the time frame, that was less than your accident was less than six months ago, correct? Yeah. Coming up on six months. And then immediately after you had been arrested, you entered that program for the 18 days. Yeah. Okay. And one thing that I didn't mention is when I showed up at rehab, so what was still lingering over my head was, well, I, you know, I'm still a principal of an elementary school. What's going to happen here? Um, and I had had one conversation with my associate superintendent of HR. And I just want to put this out there that my school district was extremely supportive of me. And to this day, I, you know, I can't say enough about how they helped me through the process. And they were just worried about the person more than the incident that had happened. And we had talked, but again, I went to rehab not knowing what was going on. And all I could think about those first two days was what's going to happen when it hits the news? What's going to happen? What's going to happen with my job? Are they going to fire me, suspend me? And I just couldn't, st I couldn't focus on what people are telling me in rehab because I want to know what's going on here. So finally, I picked up the phone. I said, Dad, I'm falling into the trap again. I can't focus on this. Will you present, will you call up the district and and ask them if they would accept my resignation? And that's exactly what we did. And I resigned about three days into rehab. Wow. So you resigned. Anything happen with your license for your teaching license, your admin license? Do those get revoked in this situation? They were not revoked. My teaching license and admin license are coming up for renewal, and it's it's flagged in the state of Kansas. So when I would send that in to get it uh, to get it renewed, there would be I'd have to drive to the capital, Topeka, Kansas, and sit in front of a board and have a conversation with all of them, and they would determine whether they would renew my license at that point or not. Okay. And have you made a decision yet as to whether or not you're going to do that? Uh, that's a great question. The further I get away from education at this point, the less likely I see it as me getting back into education. Uh, when I came back to Kansas City, I contacted every school district around here trying to get a, a sit-down meeting and explain everything to them. And I heard the same thing, essentially, uh, from every school district that with this story, it's very difficult for them to attach their district's name to mine because my story went all over the country. And we haven't talked about that, but I, when I was in rehab, I had 
gone up and I had just asked someone, I said, well, hey, will you Google my name real quick? Because I wanted to see if the story hit the news. And sure enough, the first four stories that popped up were from my local town. The actual – I was in rehab and there was a, a nursing student that came in from a – we were around Wichita, Kansas. And I was explaining to her and kind of telling her my story. And she's like, oh, yeah, I read about you in the newspaper the other day. And I was like, wow. And before you know it, it's picked up in San Francisco, Texas, New York, all over the place. Yeah. Unfortunately, people love miserable stories about educators and education, don't they? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're looking for the clicks. It's a, it's a big story, a public figure uh, with the DUI. I understand. And I hold um, – you know, I, I'm not mad at anyone for that. They're doing their job, and I'm the one that created the situation. So the only one to point fingers at is myself. Right, right. So when did you start getting into your mental health advocacy, and, and tell us a bit about that? It was about two months ago, uh, sitting at home and just, again, thinking about that night that I was handcuffed to a bench and trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together of how I got there. Uh, because at this point, two months, you know, two months ago, I'm feeling pretty good, um, feeling even better today. And I just, I was so frustrated. I was like, you know what? That was the worst part of my life. And it's not even close that I never want anyone in, in this world to have to go through those feelings that I had. And at that point I called my wife and I, I talked to her and I said, this means a lot to me. And what I want to do is I want to come out with my full story. I said that the news has already ran it. It's not like there's, there's anything else worse they can write about me. And I just asked her for permission. I said, this is going to put our whole family back in the spotlight, but she agreed to it. Bless her heart. And I got my laptop out and I Googled every person that wrote a story in a newspaper, did a news article on me. And I sent them, this was May by the way, which is mental health awareness month. And I sent them my story. I sent them what I had done since and I sent them the website that I was creating called Grace in Your Corner and told them my my mission. And it picked up with about six stations. And from there, I started to get more and more people that were reaching out to me. And it's amazing that once someone knows that you are struggling from a mental illness, what they will confide in you. I mean, I was getting letters from people that – I would never, ever in my last thought think that they would tell me something so so secretive. But they feel much more comfortable because my stuff's out there, right? So I continued with that. And right now, again, I have my website, Grace in Your Corner. And it's just a platform where I'm going through my life story, hoping that people can see that and know that their story doesn't have to end like mine. I wish so much that I would have had someone grab me by the arm and say, hey, this is the path you're heading down because I've done it because I might not be in the spot I'm in today. And if I can save one person or one life, uh, then everything I'm doing is worth it. And I've already started to see an impact. So I'm, I am very passionate about what I'm doing right now. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so you have uh, a website. What other materials on your website? You have a blog. You have some mm -hmm. resources listed. Mm -hmm. I do I do a mixture. I do blogs. I do video logs or a vlog. Um, I have resources listed there. I have a feature called a corner card. And all a corner card is is it's just a uh, pick-me-up note that 
um, people can say, you know what, I see that this person's struggling in life, and I think that they just need a note to let them know that they're not alone, to let them know that they're loved. So people can go on for free and just enter. They just give me the address of the person, the name, and a brief situation, and I send a Grace in Your Corner card to them. And that originated from, uh, so I'm a huge sport fan, and I am a uh, my alumni, Kansas State University, Bill Snyder. He's a he's a Hall of Fame coach that just recently retired, but he is a compassionate person that finds a time for everything. So after I went to rehab, I had worked with K-State through my elementary school. He wrote me a handwritten note telling me to keep my head up that people support me. And I just said, this guy is coaching at the highest level, and he has time to write a note to someone that he barely knows. And that's where my corner cards came from. I'm like, then I need to pay it forward and do that too. So that's a feature. And I'm really trying to to speak to as many groups as possible. I actually um, spoke to a group last night. Uh, I've got some universities lined up to start the school year. I have a church event coming up um, and just spreading the word as much as I can. That's fantastic. And it's only been going for a couple of months. It's It's really gone a lot faster than I thought it would, but... As I said, I'm not satisfied with with just the progress I've made now. It's something that uh, hearing stories from other people, hearing your depression files and listening to some of the, the podcast on that, it just fuels my fire to help out and seeing what you're doing and helping out people. It's just like we can't all do this in silos. Let's join up together and let's let's conquer this and let's give society and people what they deserve to know that that stigma is out there. But – you're not the only one that has it, and you have to speak up and find that vulnerability to get the support that you deserve because you're worth it. We're, you're worth it, right? We need people to find their confidence back and be able to understand that you're not a burden to someone. People want to help you. They just need you to open up to them and let them know how because otherwise they're guessing, and that frustrates you. That frustrates them, and then you end up pushing each other away. Right. What's next for you? You're going to be continuing with the advocacy work. It sounded like you were questionable about education. Yeah. I've actually decided to go into real estate. So I am uh, in the process of getting licensed in Kansas and Missouri. I live 20, 20 minutes from the Missouri border, so I'll be uh, certified in both states. Um, it's still helping people. I mean, it's one of the biggest life decisions that you can make is uh, to buy a property um, so look at that. And another thing that comes along with real estate is the, a more flexible schedule, as you know, and as an administrator, your schedule is not extremely flexible. You can't just take off during the, the middle of the day to go take care of something. Um, and you have a lot of night events. That sounds fantastic. Like you said, it's still helping people. It's still a completely people oriented field and so forth. Yeah. And it gives me the flexibility too to continue to work on my mission, uh, which, that was a big decision and what I was going to do is, you know, grace in your corner wasn't something that I was going to establish while I was had, at home unemployed. Grace in your corner is a mission that will continue to go. And I'm not trying to be a one-person show on this. I'm trying to create a community, a family where people can connect. I want other people to share their stories, and I'm starting to have uh, people email me and and reach out to me, text me, and say, hey – You've inspired me. I want to share my story on your platform. And that's what I love because that tells me that people are gaining confidence to see that, you know what, this is a mental illness. 
just like we treat diabetes, just like we treat asthma, we can also need to, to take the same focus on when we're looking at someone with a mental illness. And that is exactly what I want. So I'm going to try to grill this thing and make it kind of a community run organization. Sounds fantastic. Have you been working still at patching things up with your wife and where are you guys at? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. Uh, we had a rough stretch when I came back to Kansas City. You know, I did a lot of things that she didn't deserve. I put her in an awkward situation. I drug our family name through the mud. And when you come back from something like that, and when you just bottled up emotions for so long, you can say things, but the only way you really fix things are, are through actions. And that's exactly what I've been doing. I've been doing exactly what I'm going to say. I came back with a plan and I gave it to my closest circle and said, here's what I'm going to do. And if I'm not doing this, hold me accountable and call me out on it. Um, and that's really allowed us to repair our relationship and take it even one step further. I will tell you right now, with my wife, with my in-laws, with my mom and dad, my siblings, we probably have a closer relationship than we ever have had because we don't have as many fluff conversations. We have authentic real transparent conversations about emotions and we don't skirt around details anymore. Yeah, that's fantastic. And your wife's actually on one of your video blogs, isn't she? <laughs> uh, that took some convincing to do. Number <laughs> one, she just doesn't like to be on camera, number one. Right. And she knows that I'm kind of a, a wild card with what I'm going to ask. And uh, But we had a lot of fun doing that together and it was about parenting. And uh, I can attribute my recovery to a lot of things, but it starts number one with God and one B is my wife, Lauren. Right. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's clearly supportive for her to be on a video with you, um, and engaging with the, with you around the conversation. So that's awesome. How old are your kids? I have a seven year old and a five year old boy. So they're, <laughs> they're active and, uh, we have a lot of fun this summer, but sometimes, you know, I'm thinking when's that school year start back up. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, I know that feeling. So, um, the kids being five and seven, what do they know about your story? What have you thought about when you tell them what you tell them? Yeah, that was a, that's a, a topic that, you know, you have to take very delicately. Um, because again, there's two facets, there's depression and then there's the DUI and, and substance abuse. Um, and what I didn't tell you is one day when I was at rehab, my wife came home and she turned the TV on and it just happened to be the news and my picture was on there and my oh. son saw that. Yeah. Um, she did a great job. It just, she just shut it off and said that's, you know, just didn't go into it that much. But even a five and a seven year old can tell a difference in a parent. Yeah. And, you know, I was extremely tired around the house. I go to bed early. I wouldn't be very engaged. And they would ask me at times when I was um, going through my depression of, uh, you know, why are you so tired, Dad? When are you going to get healthy again? And uh, the it was probably a month and a half ago, my son, um, he told me, it's awesome to have the best dad back again. He says, Daddy, you're healthy again. And uh, thank you for doing that. Because I would tell him my support groups, I just tell him I'm going to classes to stay healthy. But you think a five and a seven year old don't know, they know when something's off. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, it seems like things are really moving in the right direction for you. 
yeah, I, I am in a great spot in life. I'm extremely happy with where things are at. I'm still going to keep myself number one on the list. I'm going to be selfish because I know that when I put myself down the list, I didn't take care of myself the way I need to. But the way that I can continue to do that is share my story. You know, people, I'm trying to help people, but doing stuff like this helps me a lot too, just to talk about it and get through it. And um, so, you know, I, I really appreciate what, we're, what you're doing and, you know, connecting with people and giving others the opportunity to hear from all of us out there. I mean, there's so many people that are suffering in silence and just need to understand that support is there. Just find a way to, to be willing to accept it and be vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. Which uh, brings me to my last question before we wrap up. What kinds of advice, suggestions you would have for somebody who may be listening that is struggling right now? What would be your, your number one tip or, or piece of advice for them? I think you have to find the people that you're comfortable with. Find your safe spot and be open and honest with them. Don't feel that you're a burden. Know that the burden comes when you bottle up your emotion because then you keep the, the people closest to you guessing and they want to do anything and everything they can for you. So being honest and finding the courage to speak up, and that's tough. That takes, it feels like a leap of faith, honestly, but being able to communicate that, and that might just be one person. I mean, I'm not asking people to go on a show with you and I or anything of that sort, but just being truthful and honest with themselves and give people the opportunity to help because it is a you know support group, medication, therapist. It's all of these things for me. I mean, it takes a lot of things in place for me, not just one, to stay healthy and just get that process started and find the help that you might need because you are worth it. Just know you are worth it. Awesome. Great piece of advice. Well, Corey, I want to thank you so much for uh, being vulnerable, sharing your story. And it's your story is so recent. I know you're still working through pieces. I'm glad you're doing so well. And uh, I really hope you continue that path. And good luck with the real estate uh, yeah. field as well. And uh, keep doing the advocacy work and make sure you stay healthy. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. Continue to do your good work. Um, you probably don't hear it every day, but man, things like this make a huge difference. So thank you to you. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.